Hi, this is Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO Magazine, back once again for another episode of Mike on MedTech, part of the MedTech Matters uh, podcast. Uh, joining me as always, Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm well, thank you, Sean. Great. So uh, today we wanted to kind of cover a, a, a more take a more elementary approach to uh, to a topic, and that is uh, taking a look at uh, an alternative to probably the two pathways, uh, the regulatory pathways that most are familiar with, that is the PMA and the 510K. Uh, there are other options, and one of them is the de novo. Uh, it's definitely a pathway that I'm not nearly as familiar with as the other two more prominently used uh, pathways. So I, I asked Mike if he would mind kind of doing a de novo 101 for this episode of Mike on MedTech, and of course he was happy to oblige. So Mike, let's just get started with the, the simplest question. What is the de novo regulatory pathway? So it's a great question, Sean, and thanks again for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience um, because, quite frankly, I get a lot of people that tell me either they're not familiar with the de novo, they've never heard of the de novo, or in some cases when somebody tells me they're bringing their device onto the market as a 510K and I ask them why, they respond by asking, did they have another option? <laughs> so. The short answer to your question, Sean, is the de novo is another pathway to market that's available here to us in the United States. Um, in addition to the PMA and the 510K, there are actually seven different pathways to market. The de novo is a third. And basically its differentiator is that it is for medium or low-risk devices, that is class 2 or class 1 devices, where there is no suitable predicate. In other words, um, there is no device out there that's similar to it in either labeling or technology or both. And so that particular device would not be uh, applicable for a 510K. It's a device that would be considered new or novel, and therefore the de novo would be a great option for a manufacturer to consider. So because it's a, a low or, or middle risk uh, device, is, it basically doesn't meet the criteria for requiring a, a PMA, is that kind of, so it kind of serves as an in-between PMA and 510K? That's, uh, well, sort of. Uh, let me illustrate this way, Sean. Um, can you tell me what the um, default classification for any new medical device would be? In other words, new device meaning that there is no predicate, there's, no, there's nothing out there that's substantially equivalent. What would be the default classification, class 3, class 2, or class 1? Take a guess. Oof, you put me on the spot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess. There's no, I mean, predicate shouldn't play a, play a role in its class, at least that's what I think. I might be further, uh, further showing my ignorance to this, but I wouldn't think that class is determined by predicate. So that's, that's out. Um, I'm going to say it depends on what the role of the device is or what the therapeutic, you know, if it's an implant, it, it could be three, if it's, uh, you know, human contact, it's two. Uh, uh, I'm going to throw it back to you, though, because obviously I'm, I'm not clear on it. 
Well, first of all, uh, kudos to you for, for trying, for swinging the bat. And, um, uh, and normally, Sean, you would have gotten that answer correct. In other words, oh, the shortest – I said normally, but in this case, you actually <laughs> didn't. Uh, but, but here's what I mean by that. Uh, the, normally, the, the default uh, – I'm sorry, normally, the, 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 the most accurate, the most succinct answer to – most questions in regulatory affairs is it depends. And that's, in fact, what you started to say. But in this particular case, it's actually not um, that complicated. It's quite simple. The default classification for any new medical device is class three. Okay. Um, is class three. And now, when you think about it, it makes sense because, remember, we're talking about devices that are truly new or novel. They don't have a history of uh, being well-established technology or anything like that. So it makes sense to set the bar in terms of classification or risk at the highest possible level. But let's think about it this way, uh, Sean, in a commonsensical fashion. Um, today, Band-Aids are ubiquitous, right? Band-Aids have, have been around for a long time. But back in the day, there was no Band-Aid. So if we were the very first company to bring a Band-Aid onto the market, the default classification for that Band-Aid, we would have absolutely no choice. The default would be Class 3, okay. which would mean that we would be putting it in the same classification bucket as other medical devices like a totally implantable artificial heart. <laughs> now, it shouldn't take a MD or PhD or RAC after somebody's name to, to, to understand that putting, treating a Band-Aid, subjecting it to the same level of scrutiny in terms of benchtop testing, animal testing, clinical testing, and so on, um, we shouldn't put that in the same bucket as an artificial heart. It makes absolutely no sense. Right. So the essence of the de novo, it's a form of risk mitigation. Um, in other words, we have to walk into the FDA and be able to argue with a straight face that here's our new Band-Aid. There's no Band-Aid on the market like it yet. Um, normally, we would be class three. We would be a PMA or perhaps an HDE. However, it doesn't make sense to treat our Band-Aid as a class three. Instead, it should be a class two, and here's why, or a class one, and here's why. Here's another way to think about this, Sean, if it'll help. I think in many ways, the... Uh, the de novo is even simpler than the 510K. Even though lots of people use the 510K, it's not always the best option. The de novo is simpler. Why? Because there are two components to a successful 510K that, in my opinion, are the most important components. Can you guess what either or both of those are, Sean? What do you think are the two most important things that go into a successful 510K submission? Uh, I'm going to say the predicate device used... And, oof, the second one, I'm not sure. Uh, am I right about predicate device at least? Did I get one? Actually, you're right. You got, you okay. got that part right. All so right, there we so go. one component uh, that's, the, that's most important in the 510K is substantial equivalence, identifying the predicate. The other component is risk. Okay. So the two most important um, uh, parts of a 510K submission, this is infinitely more important than filling out all the forms properly and ticking all the boxes. The two most important are the substantial equivalence argument and the risk mitigation strategy. Simply put, Sean, for a successful 510K, if you don't have a rock-solid substantial equivalence argument and a bulletproof risk mitigation strategy, you are simply not going to be successful with your 510K, certainly not first time out of the box. On the other hand, when it comes to the de novo, as I said, it's even simpler than the 510K because there is no substantial equivalence argument. If there was, 
you would not be in the de novo, you would be in the 510K. So the de novo comes down to one and only one thing, risk mitigation. As I said, you have to be able to walk into the FDA and argue with a straight face that here's our new Band-Aid. It doesn't make sense to treat it as class three. It should instead be class two and here's why or class one and here's why. Does that make sense, John? Yeah, I think so. Um, but then my question is, so we we know we've we've talked about some of the substantial equivalence uh, uh, concerns uh, that have come from outside the industry, whether it be Congress or you know documentaries or whatever. Um, would it if, if so? You, if you have a low risk device now, granted, some of the devices that went through 510K, the argument could be made that maybe they should have gone through PMA. We talked about whether or not implantable should you know universally be five. You know, we've kind of covered that whether they should be universally PMA. Would it make sense for a device that would be able to go through a 510K for the company to say? You know, there's not an equivalent device. You know, if you to to let me better ask, you're indicating that in for those two items, the de novo is a simpler submission. I think that's what you said uh, than a 510k because it, you don't have to show substantial equivalence. Would it make more sense for the de novo to be used more often? for what would have otherwise been a, a 510K submission? I, I think well, I have a question in there. Hopefully you follow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you do. And, and your thinking, your mental processes uh, of trying to understand this, I think are indicative of most people in this industry when they also try to understand not just what the de novo is, but more importantly, when to use it or alternatively when not to. I would say two things, Sean, in response to what you just said. First, um, in my, you know, more than 25 years of playing this game, rarely, if ever, is the decision, assuming that it's a class two device, is the decision of regulatory path. In other words, 510K versus de novo, rarely, if ever, is it a straightforward one. There are advantages and disadvantages to both. And just because a lot of people use the 510K, as you well know, Sean, it's the workhorse of our industry, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best way. Um, there are a number of very significant advantages to doing a de novo, even if you possibly could do a 510K, and we can talk about that more in a moment if you'd like. The other thing that I would just mention in terms of substantial equivalence, Sean, is that <clears throat> although substantial equivalence technically cannot be used in a de novo, because if you did, you would be in a 510K, I use the concept, I use the regulatory logic of substantial equivalence, not just in the de novo world all the time, I also use it in the PMA world all the time. Now, a lot of my friends out there are going to say, what the heck, this guy must be wackadoodle. You know, how can you use substantial equivalence in a de novo or especially as a PMA? Well, remember, Sean, this is why I emphasize regulatory logic so much. I don't use the concept of substantial equivalence in the predicate sense of the word, but I use substantial equivalence in risk mitigation strategy. So, for example, if there are other devices out there that are not substantially equivalent in a predicate sense, but they are similar in terms of the technology, it stands to reason that maybe some of the risks in those devices are comparable to my new device, and therefore I'll use their risk mitigation measures in order to help mitigate some of my risks. And also, Sean, I use the concept of substantial equivalence in the testing matrix all the time. 
once again, if there are other devices out there that are not substantially equivalent in the predicate or the regulatory sense, but they have technologies or components of technologies that are similar to my new device, it makes sense to take a look at how those particular devices were tested. In other words, when I go into the FDA, Sean, and as you know, I'm down there at, uh, usually once a month, if not more, I want to demonstrate to my FDA friends that I know what the heck that I'm doing and that if I'm going in with a de novo, I'll say, look, this is a new or novel device. There's nothing out there substantially equivalent in the predicate sense. But there are similar technological features or components of our device in these other devices being used perhaps in other areas of medicine. And I will use those, as I said, as part of my risk mitigation strategy and or as part of the justification for my testing matrix. So if you understand the regulatory logic, not, not the literal interpretation, interpretation of the regulation, but the regulatory logic, it's a very powerful technique. Okay, so so we've gotten more of the the definition, and we've gotten some some explanation, some some clarity on what the de novo is. Is is it possible to get um, examples, perhaps, or you know, best case scenario to use a de novo, and then uh, maybe follow that up with some situations where it it or or circumstances where it shouldn't be used. Well. First of all, I don't know of any circumstance where it absolutely should not be used. As I said, there's very few things in the regulatory world that are black or white. And my job as a regulatory consultant when I work with companies is to present to them all of the different options, 510K, de novo, perhaps PMA, perhaps wellness, perhaps HDE, and the advantages and disadvantages. And then we have a discussion as to which option is best for that particular situation. So... The answer to the latter part of your question, when should it never be used, I can't think of, a, of an example like that. But let me give you an example of a device um, that we brought onto the market as a de novo a few years ago to help illustrate um, the advantages over the 510K. Uh, and this gets us into what I call competitive regulatory strategy. So a few years ago, a company came to me. They had a sterilization kind of a device, sort of like an autoclave, if you will, okay. okay? And they said they were planning on bringing this device onto the market as a 510K. They said, okay, fine, no problem. Tell me a little bit about your technology. Well, it turned out that they were able to achieve sterilization at a significantly lower temperature point than their competition. So I said, yeah. look, you can bring this onto the market as a 510K, but, and there will be nothing wrong with that, but what would you have uh, accomplished? Nothing. Because you're essentially creating a Me Too, and now why should anybody buy your device when they can buy you know, any number of the 100 other devices out there? So instead of doing this as a 510K, why not consider doing this as a de novo which is in fact what we did, and we put that low temperature claim in our high-level labeling. In other words, one of the ramifications of a successful de novo, Sean, is that it creates a predicate that other companies can then use to bring their device onto the market as a 510K. But you see, we can make it more difficult for them to do that by incorporating, in this case, that low, that low temperature claim because now nobody can use our device as a predicate unless and until they meet our 
our, our, our technology. And oh, by the way, if we happen to own the IP on that technology, Sean, that ain't going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> so this is a very sophisticated way of using regulatory strategy to your competitive advantage. Using regulatory strategy is a tactical weapon against your competition. I don't know about you, Sean, but in my uh, experience in playing this game. So many people, they view regulatory as nothing more than a set of hoops that you have to jump through in order to get your device out to the market. And I'm sorry, I don't view it that way at all. If I have to jump through these hoops, so be it. But what can I do to position these hoops to make it more difficult for the people um, coming, you know, following in my footsteps? That is what I call competitive regulatory strategy. And the de novo, the, the example that I just illustrated, is one of many examples of that. And it's it's also the the re reason for the uh, importance of getting everyone on the same page, bringing marketing in and speaking with the regulatory team so that they can hear why it's going through a certain regulatory pathway and you know what the reasoning is and what the benefits to that marketing team are and you know getting everyone on the same page on that is uh, is a, another you know another strategy to use I would imagine. You're exactly correct, Sean, and here's a little tip for your audience if you're going to do something like I just suggested. Probably not a good idea for you to tell the FDA that because, you know, you don't want to say to the FDA, we're going to do this as, an, as a de novo to make it more difficult for our competition. That's not FDA's job. But right. here's another, another thing to keep in mind because obviously, Sean, you and I have in the past talked about the 510K in uh, a fair amount of detail and all of the controversy going around, uh, around it today. Well, I can tell you today, Sean, and again, this is from firsthand experience, it is much easier for me to sell a de novo right now at the agency than it is a 510K. Much right. easier to do because of all of the controversy. And here's a little tip. When I go into the FDA, I want to try to remove every possible way, uh, every possible opportunity for FDA to disagree with me. So when I go into the FDA, for example, with a device I'm going to do as a de novo, I will say, here's my device. This is what it does. Here's how it works. We're bringing it onto the market as a de novo. Oh, by the way, before I tell you why I'm doing it as a de novo, let me first tell you why I'm not doing it as a 510K. Once again, I, I want to remove every possible opportunity for FDA to disagree. I want to be able to show them that not only is there not a suitable predicate, there's also not a suitable product code. There's also not suitable special controls that would be in place. So these are all um, uh, justifications for doing the de novo. And very recently, Sean, because of the controversy with the 510K, that street now for me runs in two directions. When I go to the FDA with a 510K device, I say, here's my device. This is what it does. Here's how it works. I'm doing it as a de novo. Before I tell you why I'm doing it as a de novo, let me tell you why I'm not doing it. Oh, I'm sorry, did I say that wrong? <laughs> let me start again. Here's right. my device. This is the way that it works. I'm bringing it onto the market as a 510K. Before I tell you why I'm doing it as a 510K, let me tell you why I'm not doing it as a de novo. Right. So uh, again, it's a very basic strategy, but it's something that I see very, very few other people do. You know, as you, as you know, Sean, I work also as a consultant for the agency, for the FDA, and sometimes I'm sitting on the FDA side of the table. Uh, I've never seen anybody other than myself take that approach of not just justifying what they're doing, but justify what they're not doing and why they're not doing it. Right, exactly. 
circumventing any any issue before it even arises. Correct. So uh, just before we wrap up, you did mention uh, obviously some some tips for for people when they're meeting with the the FDA and and uh, you know eliminating those obstacles. Do you have any suggestions or best practices prior to the to the actual uh, submission, uh, such as you know perhaps things to address or things that you can do with regard to a de novo in a pre sub meeting? Well, I have lots of tips, a few I've shared already, but the most important, and you just hit the nail on the head at the end there, I can't emphasize enough when you're going to the agency with uh, what you think is a de novo device. Um, I strongly recommend having a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub with the agency in advance to make sure that they see it that way as well. Um, and, and, And first and foremost, to make sure that they buy into your classification argument. I had a conversation with one of my customers just this morning, and I had to remind them because we're going to the FDA with a de novo pre-sub in uh, in a few weeks. I said I, I reviewed the draft of their uh, pre-sub, and I said we've really got to beef up the classification argument because right. once we get FDA to agree that this is a new or novel device, that there is no predicate, as I said earlier, the default classification is class three, unless and until you can convince the FDA that it's not class three, there's absolutely no point. It would be a total and utter waste of time to have a discussion about the de novo or about the 510K for that matter because the underlying assumption is that it's class three PMA. And so uh, definitely have a pre-sub. Definitely um, present your regulatory strategy of it's a de novo and here's why, and I loop into that as I said a moment ago, it's not a 510K and here's why. I also include in most of my pre-subs the testing matrix. I want to vet the testing matrix to make sure that this is a a list of all of the tests necessary to show efficacy and safety and to to demonstrate the label claims and so on. And the third question I usually ask in most pre-subs is on the clinical data. In other words, the company is not planning on doing a clinical trial and here are all the reasons why. Or alternatively, the company is planning on doing a clinical trial and this is what it's going to look like. This is the number of patients, number of sites, inclusion and exclusion criteria, endpoints, and so on and so on. So I give that advice a lot, not just for the de novo, but especially for a de novo. I've seen it happen before. Um, This was not with a company that I worked with, but uh, other companies who they go to the FDA with a 510K and it's rejected because of substantial equivalence. Remember the the industry statistics shown, and I know we've talked about this before, um, 70%, between 70 and 75% of 510Ks are rejected. And of those that are rejected, about 85% of them are rejected specifically because of substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. Right. So if your device is class two or less, but not substantially equivalent, you are now in the de novo world. And so if you, you know, spend a lot of time and money putting together a 510K only to submit it and get it rejected as NSE, then you have wasted a, to- a ton of time and money. And in my opinion, Sean, that is a very amateur mistake. Very easy mistake to avoid if, or, or at the very least to mitigate by taking it to the agency in advance. Well, we got we certainly got a lot of information in in this one. Hopefully uh there was there was a, a good amount 
provided to you for listening. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have, though, for this episode. Uh, we'll look to do uh, some more, uh, you know, perhaps alternative routes or, or other pathways to market or some other uh, fewer or, I'm sorry, lesser known items in the FDA and future podcasts. But for now, this is Sean Fenske for MPO on behalf of Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences saying thanks for listening. Thank you.